Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 11. We're going to dive into True NAS today. And I'm here, Tom Lawrence, and with Jay LaCroix. Yes. Uh, we've talked about storage servers in general, and we're going to be driving down specifically to True NAS. And today is June 2nd, and on June 1st, 12, True NAS 12.0 U4 was released. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm excited because I was already reading all the, you know, every time there's a new release, there's more exciting new things, a few new fixes and things like that, and at least one new bug to report. But uh, either way, we're excited to dive into this topic. It's really popular, we know, among especially those of you that hoard data. You need a place to put it, and True NAS is a popular choice. Before we yep. dive into this episode, we do need to thank a sponsor of the show, and that's going to be Linode. And we even have the link right now because I, <laughs> in the very first time we had we had it wrong, we got it right, we did fix it. So if you clicked on the link and were wondering about it, it's correctly in the show notes right now. So, uh, but Yay. this show is literally brought to you by Linode. We host our website on there. That's where all of this is. If you're downloading the podcast and uh, is pulling from there, and Jay's going to tell you a little more about Linode and the offer they have. Yeah, so I've been using Linode for, I don't even know how long. I want to say two years, but uh, I don't know. I lose track of time, especially nowadays. Um, so yeah, like Tom said, the uh, website for this this uh, podcast is on there, is hosted by Linode. So like you said, it's literally brought to you by Linode. And we mean that. If you are on the website, you are using Linode. And we chose Linode because both Tom and I like it. I, I've probably had a little bit more time on it because it's been the official sponsor and actually the first sponsor for Learn Linux TV and the infrastructure provider for my YouTube channel for a couple of years now. And my rule on my YouTube channel is I only have sponsors that I actually like, that I actually use. So I literally uh, use them on everything and it's been a great experience. So with the offer code, you get, it's actually $100 in credit towards a new account and that's good for 60 days, I believe. So you can do all kinds of crazy home lab experiments on Linode. And I do consider Linode home lab, even though it's not in your home, because as a home lab person, you make a decision. What do you want to host on your hardware? And what do you want to you know, put on the cloud or make externally available? And you could argue that it might even um, help security by um, excuse me, giving you the option to make things publicly available that are not in your home lab. So you're you're not exposing your home lab to the public internet. So yeah. there's all kinds of cool things that you could do with it. Yeah, hosting servers and all that stuff. If you don't want it on your public IP address, put it on their public IP address. So I want to thank Linode for sponsoring the show. And uh, it's it's been a great service. They've been yep. great to work with. They've been nice people too. That's that's all their yep. side of it. That's behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, we met them at PenguinCon. Was it three years ago now? I want to yeah, say. Yeah, it's been a while. Wow. Then it feels time flies, and at least one year feels like it didn't happen. But we'll pretend. Thing, it <laughs> but something did happen in the last year, and it's the convergence of FreeNAS and TrueNAS. And uh, that's actually been really cool. So going back on that project is you know, FreeNAS has been around a long time and they also maintain a commercial version, which is still the open source code, but um, they distinguish them. So if you wanted to buy enterprise level support, you got their TrueNAS system and you can buy it on the TrueNAS hardware and they support it, all the fancy enterprise things like service level agreements and monitoring, et cetera, things that the enterprise business world wants. But in reality, is this the same software that runs on FreeNAS. And this created kind of a problem for them because maintaining two almost identical code bases 
to distinguish the two was kind of a pain. And it, it took a long time for them to merge it all together. And that is what TrueNAS is the name they decided on. And so unfortunately, they dropped the FreeNAS name. And unfortunately, they got rid of the Shark logo. But I think there's still a checkbox. You can make the Shark logo come back. So with an updated logo and a converged code base and a converged documentation base, which of course is important as well, we have the TrueNAS system. So FreeNAS didn't die. It kind of merged. It's all the same team. It's still the same great open source product. And that's where we are today. And as I said in the beginning, the latest version 12.0 U4 was just released on June 1st of 2021. But before you get started with TrueNAS, the first question is, what do I run it on? And uh, that's where the debate will wander all over the place because I won't say it'll run on anything, but it'll run on most anything. I mean, you can, it's, it's pretty right. Based on FreeBSD, you have the ability to run it on a wide variety of hardware. The support is relatively broad, not as much as in the Linux community. And I bring that up because someone will say, what about TrueNAS scale? Because are you guys going to talk about that? That's still in alpha. I looked at all the latest updates. We will probably do that as a completely separate episode once that gets into at least a beta. Once it comes out of alpha and into beta, I think it deserves it. It's basically they took and modularized the interface for TrueNAS and said, all right, we're going to have one that's based on Linux eventually, which is going to be TrueNAS scale for some slightly different use case. And we're going to have the tried and true BSD base of TrueNAS core. Um, and that's the one we're going to be talking about today because it is in full production release. Yep. And Tom and I both use it. He's been using it longer than me, but I, I can't remember when I switched to it. I, I think it's whenever you did a, I think you did a talk at PenguinCon. So here I am talking about PenguinCon again. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically before that, I was rolling my own. I mean, literally, I think it was Debian that yeah. was my my, my uh, storage server. And if I wanted to create a, a share, I would just SSH in, I would create the config file, restart a service or whatever I had to do, depending on what it is I'm sharing with. And that was okay uh, with me. But then it got to a point where, you know, I don't really have so much time to manually tweak everything. And TrueNAS for me was just a really easy way to get going. And there's a lot of quality of life improvements that they put on top of it, like being able to back up and restore your entire configuration you can mirror the boot volume to another drive so you know if the primary one goes down um in my case i can clone zilla the you know boot drive if i wanted to have an image backup of it you can you know put you can basically have it send all of your data off-site to a um, external provider for backup and you can of course encrypt it locally before you send it up there there's a lot of great features to have yeah and you know i learned a lot doing samba manually because i did the same thing i rolled my own debian file servers and you know that's how i did it before i got in the uh free nas when it was you know i originally started the uh, into the project but yeah it's um it's so much easier in some ways and it just consolidates everything into one nice, you know, web interface to be able to control a lot of advanced features. And those features have only gotten more and more advanced as the uh, project has progressed over the years. Uh, the first question I think though, is what hardware should I buy for it? And yeah. this is not just a true NAS question. This is also a ZFS uh, concern. Mm -hmm. You want to have whatever hardware you're using this in has to have direct, direct access to the hard drives. 
that is a, whether you run ZFS yourself on whatever role you're on hardware or you choose to do it with TrueNAS, that same parameter is applied that we need direct access. As in, we don't want a RAID controller. There's a misconception when you're starting out in home lab a lot of times that anytime there's a card that controls 20 hard drives, it must be a RAID controller, but it's not. That would be... Um, a controller, but if it just passes through the drives for connectivity, then it's not a RAID controller. And that's fine. That's what you're looking for. Now, some, this is where you can go down the rabbit hole of firmware. And there's a couple, there's a uh, eBay seller who has a YouTube channel. I can't remember his name at the moment, but he offers like how to get these uh, certain Dell ones reflashed into different modes. That's cool. Um, uh, we won't go spend too much time on that. Basically, however you get to that point where it's direct access hard drives or you just buy a board that has a handful of SATA ports, away you go. And th that's at least something I just can't stress enough for problems we've helped people through uh, in forum posts that are all over the place of, I can't get it working with this, you know, insert name of used server they found, but they also have a uh, setup as a RAID controller and they can't figure out why I can't see the drives. <laughs> so, yeah, but, I think the lesson is that it does work on, you know, not everything, but quite a few things. But don't impulsively buy something just making the assumption that it'll work because right. um, I was burned on that too. I found out the hard way about the RAID situation and um, I, I found someone on eBay, uh, like Tom mentioned, you know, this is a thing. And I literally searched, I thought I searched for uh, eBay for RAID card uh, FreeNAS. It was FreeNAS at the time. And the first result was just a, an individual here in the United States that all that person does on eBay, um, for what I could see, is they just flash the uh, RAID cards yep. and resell them. And yes, you could do that yourself. But I was looking at it like I had a lot going on. I'm like, I want, I want to press the easy button. So I just ordered it. It didn't cost me very much. Put it in and it was fine. Right. The other cool thing is if you spend a few minutes in their forums, they, they have a category called Will It Free NAS? And uh, much like the name implies, Will It Free NAS is a hardware discussion of what is some good supported hardware. So if you spend just a few minutes researching ahead of time, you can find a good set of hardware plenty of uh, compatible things. Matter of fact, if you go over to like eBay, uh, if you're looking really on a budget and there's some good, you know, commodity servers out there, usually by Supermicro. Um, but if you type in FreeNAS or TrueNAS into your eBay search, you'll actually find systems that are already set up in the mode to work for uh, setting it up with TrueNAS. So there's a lot of good ways to find hardware on there. Um, it's just one of the things I try to before you just run out and buy something because it's got a dozen drives in it at a good price, double check that little bit of compatibility, save yourself a lot of unfortunate headache because those things, the shipping costs quite a bit and uh, you don't want to have to ship it back. Now, right. the next question usually is, can I just virtualize it? And I would say in a lab environment, yes. In a advanced use case that you're really willing to put the time in to troubleshoot some of the problems that may come with virtualizing it, yes. But once again, that direct access to hard drive dovetails into this because when you virtualize it, you want to make sure you are passing through the controller. So whatever you're using as a hypervisor and you go, hey, I want to virtualize the install. Okay, you can virtualize the boot device and then you pass through into that VM the controller. Now, there has been a uh, recently some uh, bugs 
that have been fixed in that area. So they've been getting better. I think one of my friends had some trouble with uh, XCPNG and they went in the BSD community, found some bugs in some of the drivers that happened when you virtualized it. So there's always extra, because you're adding an extra layer that you can cause a lot of problems. So I, my general answer is don't do it unless it's just because you are curious and want to see what the latest version of TrueNAS scale looks like. You want to play with it. Yeah, I virtualized it for that, not in production. Or you're someone who's willing to put the time in to solve all the extra parameters and problems. But if you're brand new to TrueNAS, yeah, you're, you don't want to start with, I don't know this product. Where, where is it my lack of knowledge on this product or is it all the other problems that came with virtualizing it uh, that are causing all my drama right now of getting this to work? So I just like to remind people on uh, that part about virtualization on there. Yeah, I feel like my opinion is I, I'm not a fan of like a central point of failure to where you virtualize everything on one server. And I totally understand it's convenient because you have one server, right? But if that one server goes and everything on there goes too. Um, but I also understand, I think a lot of people with Home Lab, um, they're setting it up for the first time. They don't really have the money to buy three or four servers or a dedicated server. I would still recommend a dedicated server like Tom, because you, if you don't have the money, save up for it. Um, I think it's better to do that than it is to just uh, force things to work in virtualization. Some people have success with that. I know there's going to be people in the comments that'll say it works fine for me. Well, yeah, it, it probably does. But I think that it's going to work a whole lot better on a dedicated server. So if uh, that's not something in your budget, I always say, you know, just just save up a little bit more. Just wait. You don't need it today. You know, just 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 put some money in a jar or something. And then when you have enough, just um, go to that section of the forums that Tom mentioned about and let them know what you're thinking about buying. Make sure you check the raid card. Do your research. Also, also. Check out the noise from some of these servers too. Uh, yeah, you could you could <laughs> buy um, a server and then it ends up it just ends up being super loud. Sometimes it's just a matter of going in the bio settings because in the enterprise, you know, where these things are from, they really don't care about noise. They're behind a locked door anyway, so they might have the fan on the highest possible speed. So maybe you can get that down, but but check that as well. And um, I think you'll be fine with a dedicated machine, but just do your research and also power usage. Check that too, because if you live in an area where there's you know very expensive electricity, might want to factor in how much uh, power usage a particular server might actually utilize. Yeah. And these are things we brought up. It's all these little parameters because yep. as much as I say, hey, go ahead and type free NAS over on eBay and you'll find usually Unix Surplus is one of the companies and we've bought from them before um, that have them that have specifically systems that have all the drives accessible via whatever LSI raid card. And they, they know because they know which ones are popular for free NAS. So once again, you're you're buying something specifically purposed. But the other side of that is, you know, we, we've had some of them and we're like, wow, that thing is not quiet because it wasn't when they were designing it, they engineered the fans to cool the system, not to keep your uh, living room quiet or wherever you've decided to make your home lap. So uh, definitely take that into consideration before you run out and buy one. So <laughs> next thing is, I would say installing the drives versus the data drives. This is where you can get a little bit confused. You want to set up and you can set them up in a RAID, like a mirror, which is adequate for boot drives. I've seen people insist on using NVMe for boot drives. That feels kind of like a waste NVMe. The way the system works is it in SSD works perfectly fine for the boot drive. You take it, you boot it off that boot drive. You can use a USB thumb drive that is acceptable, 
but it can wear a little bit faster and end up in a, a less good situation. Uh, Serve the Home is good at keeping up to date some of their recommendations, and we'll have a link in the show notes for them. Um, basically, they call it their free NAS or true NAS buyer's guide, and they talk about what good boot drives to use because the boot drives and data drive are separate. You don't, if you have a uh, large drive, it's not really worth it. You may as well just get a small drive for the boot drive because you can't use the boot drive for anything other than booting the operating system. So if you have a one terabyte SSD, you can't parse it up going, well, it's only gonna use like 32 megs or 128 megs for boot. Can I use the rest for uh, you know, uh, storage? You're like, no, the boot drive is the boot drive. And that's why I recommend don't, I've seen a lot of people run out and buy like a pair of MVMEs for boot. And I'm like, yeah, it boots a little bit faster, but you're not rebooting it often. So uh, save the money, use the MVMEs for caching. We'll get to that in a second for special drive purposes, but the boot drives go right. You know, reliable is important. This is one of the reasons Serve the Home recommends some of the commercial um, Intels and a few others that they recommend, but you can put them in a pair and kind of like Jay said, it's easy to back it up because all the config file is one file. So if you ever lose the boot drive, it's, it's annoying. Yes. Uh, but yep. if you have a single drive, because that's what your budget allows. And as long as you have a backup, you can reload TrueNAS to a new boot drive if it fails and then restore the config restart. And all your stuff is there because the data drives are a separate piece. I'm going to play devil's advocate actually on some of that because I, I do agree about the USB flash drive thing. It's um, it was problematic for me. I think I I think I had two in a mirror, and I had one go every month for like three or four months. It's probably a coincidence. Maybe I should have did more research and bought a better uh, set of flash drives. But it is what it is. So I went to um, M2 SSDs for the boot volume myself, keeping in mind that I bought the cheapest possible one. Um, I think I paid 20 or $30, which isn't that much different than a flash drive. And it might be the placebo effect. The interface feels faster to me when I'm clicking around the interface. I don't really care about the boot speed because honestly on servers, they're gonna boot slow anyway because the memory test alone at the beginning is going to dwarf any improvement in boot that you could possibly hope to get. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, for me, I, I think that there's no wrong answer. If you have a really decent flash drive or a, a cheap SSD, it's fine. For me, I mean, I've had fewer failures. I've had none, knock on wood, so far. But again, it could have been just because I bought, like, uh, you know, not the best flash drives. But I, I think that the SSD idea can work, but like Tom said, don't buy a terabyte SSD. You are wasting a lot of space. You get the smallest one you can, a 32 gig, 64 or something like that, and just yeah. call it a day. And they're so inexpensive now to get those. They cost as much. Yeah. They do make, um, if you dive into a little bit, they do make high endurance um, writing thumb drives. Those ones would be more acceptable. And that's why I mentioned the Serve the Home article kind of dives into some of those topics. Because um, it's not that you can't use them, but there are certain ones that are better because they're designed for a higher endurance than your average thumb drive. So they're kind of not really on a recommended list because the price on the high endurance ones comes back up to being closer to the SSDs. So... It's worth mentioning on there. Now, when it comes to buying the boot drives, this is, uh, well, right now in June of 2021 is apparently really tricky um, because the hard drive prices are a little high and a little out of stock because apparently someone thought of a way to uh, create some type of cryptocurrency off of the hard drives. So that can be a little bit of a pain, but 
still, um, one of the tricks that is still viable, and this goes back to eBay, is buying a handful of enterprise drives that are, it depends on your storage needs, of course. New is always the best, but buying a bunch of enterprise drives and getting them off eBay sometimes can be a pretty good deal. And you can get a decent amount of storage for a reasonable price. And because those drives, when you're buying them in bulk, if you build an array of 10 drives, for example, um, buy a couple extra in case one goes bad. You know, it, it, if you're buying new, great, buy what your budget can afford and maybe one hot spare if you want, or if the drive's readily available, use Amazon Prime as your spare, which is frequently what a lot of people do because they know they can get it fast enough that like, well, if one goes bad, we can decide that. But the storage capacity will be dictated and just type in ZFS calculator in Google, you can figure this out. You have different levels of RAID. Easy ways to remember is let's say we talk about a ZFS and in this will we could occupy the entire show with different ways to set it up, but we're going to keep it simple and assume you have one VDEV and we'll get to the hierarchy in a second. But if you have a ZFS standard ZFS level RAID, you're going to be able to, we'll call it ZFS one. You let's say you have six drives, you're going to be able to survive a drive failing without losing data. Then you have ZFS version two or ZFS two. Now you're going to be able to have RAID Z2 that will allow you to have up to two drives and then RAID Z3, ZFS3 is gonna be the um, three up to three drives failure. Now, where this gets a little bit tricky is obviously it's not just like, oh, we'll just go for the best where we can have a three drive failure. Each one costs more storage. You lose storage efficiency as you gain redundancy across these. So how critical your data is, where does your budget fall? You should always have it backed up because RAID is not a backup, RAID is resiliency. But for a lot of people, you know, they want to maximize storage because they have it duplicated somewhere else. Just going with ZFS or RAID Z1 is going to be probably adequate. And I had an interesting experience, and I don't know what the scenario is like about ZFS now, because I think this is a couple of years ago. I remember I had four terabytes total. Uh, well, actually, I had four terabytes worth of drives, and I was running up on the space there. And I read that at that time, that, that if I was to change, you know, each drive to, to be bigger drives, that's how I used to do it back in the day. You know, when I, it, it's a risk, of course, but if I want to ex extend a Linux RAID, I would just um, fail out one drive, replace it with a bigger one, repeat for each, and then resize the file system. What I was expecting to happen when I did this with ZFS, I did the same thing. I failed the drive, replaced the drive. I was expecting to not have any additional space because what I had read was that they're working on having it be extendable, but it wasn't that today, the day I was doing this. But what ended up happening when I replaced that last drive is it actually utilized all of the available space and yes. grew the ZFS. And I'm thinking, I just read that this isn't possible. And I also read that they're working on this for a future inclusion in a newer version of ZFS, but it worked. So um, is that still a problem today? Is, are there still some, is there still confusion about that now? Yes. Now, this is one of the reasons that the base of how you set it up is so important because one of the things about ZFS is you can't expand it, but you can under certain parameters. So it's easier to say no because of the complexities because it's a but and here's all the parameters you have to meet. Let's say we have six drives. All these drives are one terabyte and one of them goes bad. Well, there's no more one TB drive, so we replace with a two TB. Once we've replaced every drive with a two TB, it can expand to the larger drive set, but not until then. This is one of those kind of exceptions to it. 
that's one way to do it. And right now, it's probably a good time to talk about ZFS hierarchy because this plays into how you expand the drives. There is a couple different ways to do this. So the hierarchy starts like this. You, you start with drives. And I've always liked Wendell from Level 1 Text, the way he references the drives, that they really are an amazing Rube Goldberg machine of mechanical engineering and spinning rust. And it is amazing that they work as well as they do. But this is the groupings of these um, are important because this is how you get your redundancy. The first base is you take the hard drives, you group them into a VDEV virtual device. Now, the VDEV, you can have one VDEV and have that VDEV be, let's say, we'll just use ZFS uh, RAID Z2 as an example. So we have five drives, we're going to put them in a RAID Z2. Then we take these five drives and then we want to build them into another VDEV. So we have another five drives. Each VDEV has to be symmetrical. So if you have two VDEVs, three VDEVs, four VDEVs, however many you have, they all have to match. If you built the first one with five drives, the next one has to build five drives. And you're probably wondering, why would I even build them like this? The reason for it is if you build them like this, the writes have to go to both VDEVs, but the reads can basically go in between them and pull from each one, kind of like how RAID 10 works. So you can start looking at this hierarchical structure for ways you can build these VDEVs so you can actually achieve faster reads. Because putting all the drives in one pool, as they call it, making a wide VDEV, let's say, you know, I only have 10 drives, it's more speed efficient to take 10 drives and break them into two five-drive VDEVs. Now, that RAID Z2, where you can have up to two drives fail, applies to each individual VDEV. So technically, I can lose more drives as long as it's not all in the same VDEV. This is where that it gets kind of complex, but I do have another video, which I'll link to that I dive into uh, more visually how to describe all the different ways <clears throat> that the VDEVs can be tied together. The next couple pieces that are really important is the VDEVs have to be symmetrical, but they don't have to be the same size. They have to be symmetrical in architecture, but different size and drives. And I have a video where I explain how unbalanced VDEVs work. And the way that would work is, let's say the first grouping of drives in these VDEVs, we have five drives and it totals 10 terabytes. Then we get five more drives and it totals 20 terabytes. It will actually interpolate back and forth between the VDEVs and for every one write on the 10 terabyte drive, two writes of the data go to the 20 terabyte. So it'll actually balance an unbalanced VDEV. So there's all kinds of little trickiness to it. And you can take a pool and expand and add another VDEV to it. So technically, if I started out with, let's say a, the 45 drives case is a probably a great example. It holds 30 drives. Let's say I bought 20 of them and built two 10 drive VDEVs, and later I buy 10 more drives. As long as I put in 10 more drives to keep the VDEVs symmetrical in design and architecture of the other ones, I can actually add them later and expand, but there's no contraction. So this is this is where a lot of people get confused. This is a ZFS thing, not a TrueNAS thing. This is part of the parameters of the way ZFS is done, but it's one of those really important concepts to understand because some people, you know, they, they look at some of the more generalized, like, you know, RAID um, that you'll find in Linux and go, well, I can just expand that. Or let's talk about a Synology and you can just add some drives and expand an existing RAID pool. Traditional RAID works that way. ZFS, because of the 
extra features and everything that is wonderful about ZFS, which by the way, for anyone that wants to leave a comment, yes, I'm part of the apparent cult of ZFS because I'm a big fan of it like many other people are. <laughs> I've always I always loved it when people said I'm, I'm, I'm too into it, but it has so many enterprise features for the things it does. There are sacrifices that had to be made, such as not being able to willy-nilly add a drive whenever you want and expand it dynamically. But you get all these cool features for sacrificing that expandability. This is why so much planning has to go into and consulting um, that goes into how do I build out my storage servers? And you have to really think about it and putting a plan together for that. Yeah, make sure you buy as much as possible everything the, the way you want it all in one shot. You know, buy your drives, you know, plan for future growth. If you have like four terabytes of data, you know, don't say, I think I'm good on six. Are you? I mean, what's your, what's your growth like? What, what do you think you're going to be using in, in three, four years? And I, I argue a higher upfront cost of drives is better in the long term because it just makes it last all that much longer. And if you buy everything the way you need it, the hardware and everything, um, and put some research into that, then you won't even really run into any of these things because you already have everything you need. Now, <clears throat> one of the other ways people get away with this, and I, I haven't done a video on this, but you can find the, someone will post this quite a bit. It's an old article, but it's it's a fair assessment of, you want the ultimate expandability, you do everything as mirrored sets. You build, you can build, instead of just using standard ZFS, you can actually mirror each pair of drives. And some people say, well, do it that way because that way it's easier to expand because you can always buy just two drives at a time versus if you put everything in blocks of 10, your next block has to be 10 drives you buy. So budget concerns. The downside, of course, of this is go back to that ZFS calculator. When you start planning things out like that, you'll run into the problem of storage efficiency. It's an less efficient way to store the data. So you're getting a lesser utilization of the drives. So while it's good in the way of, you know, easier expandability, you're going to sacrifice a lot of space, which of course then pushes you to needing drives sooner. If storage is your goal, you can see how that cycle of that is a problem. It's, it's, there's no wonderful exact what's the everyone starts with the first question i want to build a free nas or a true nas server what's the best way to lay out the drives and watch that thread explode of uh everyone has an opinion how to do it but you have to ultimately decide do you want storage efficiency do you want the most speed do you want a level of expandability pick one can't pick them all <laughs> yep definitely so, have to ahead. yeah there's one of those well, those little things to, to really think about. I, I wanted to make sure we hammered that home because those are always the questions that come up in every forum post, either my forums and Shunas forums on there. Okay. Now, going on, now that we understand or hopefully understand or, or, or at least know where to go read some more so you can learn about VDEVs, once you group these VDEVs into the pool, the pool is the top of it. The pool is actually what you interact with, so to speak, be where you actually start creating your data stores. And there's two types of things you can create. You can either create a data set or a ZVAL. The difference is a data set, you can think of more like just a folder, just a place to store the data. And the data sets where you're going to create, let's say, a Samba share, because I want to share it with a bunch of Windows systems or even Linux systems. It also is where you'll create an NFS share. Let's say you're using it for virtualization as a storage target, and you have a VMware server or a XCPNG or a Proxmox, and you want to have an NFS share. You can set up an NFS share. Matter of fact, the, there's a lot of different 
little things you can do with them. You can also use data sets for jails, which we'll get to later. So data sets are essentially just where you store data. And from a command line, they just look like part of the directory hierarchy of things you go into. Zvals are the special use case, but a really cool one. Zvals are block devices. And the most popular use of Zvals is going to be for an iSCSI target. What this allows you to do is if you want to set up iSCSI on there, you attach it to a Zval, and it's presented as far as iSCSI works and the way iSCSI presents. It's like having a hard drive, even though it lives on the array of drives within the pool. So Zvals are those special use case where iSCSI being probably the most popular thing I can think of to use with them, but this creates a virtual block device that allows you to manage it. You don't get it from the command line, see anything of the file system, but it still gets all the benefits of ZFS, like snapshots and replication, but it's presented as a block device. So it has a different type of usage efficiency and primarily you're gonna use it for things like iSCSI. The next piece is how the uh, when the data set or ZVAL, the big benefit is the scrubbing, the bit rot that you're avoiding, the way it does the data scrubbing, and the way a copy on write file system works. This is the bottom line of why people are so enthusiastic about ZFS, especially when you're doing large, large scale storage. The slow rotting away of your data because a couple of bits here or there got flipped is a real concern when you're doing mass amounts of storage. So once you start down that path of being a data hoarder, for example, and maybe you have those photos like I do that date all the way back to my first Sony Mavica camera. I still have all the photos that I cared to keep from it. And, you know, that thing I think was late 90s. I got that camera, the one that stored on floppies. Maybe some of you have, uh, go back that far. But the worry you have is, of course, the data. I'm not looking at those photos too often. They're all just stored on a server somewhere. They're stored on a RAID array currently. Matter of fact, very specifically, they're stored on a TrueNAS server. And having that data integrity checked is a tricky business. And this is what ZFS excels at, being able to do that level of integrity checking so you know that if I wanted to access that really old data that I haven't touched, that's been sitting on there, that the data will be available. Something we do on the commercial side and the enterprise side is consulting with a lot of movie studios, and they have run into problems with other storage servers of having some of this bit rot. Bit rot is a silent problem because the data appears to be there, but it's actually been corrupted in some way. This is one of the big things that the enterprise price market really likes ZFS for is if they ever go back to and want to access any archival footage that they know it's there, they know it's available to them, and they can trust that anytime they want it, they can get to it. This is this is a huge factor when it comes to the data scrubbing that's on ZFS. I think Jay has run into this before, and it's a hard problem to explain. Yeah, it is. I, I think it's uh, the first thing to get out of the way and this is just to adjust the mindset. Um, every single time we mention this, and I could totally understand, no judgment at all, we'll have someone mention, but I've never had a bit rot problem. I've never had a file get corrupted. And then my counter to that is, are you sure? Because it, to put it into perspective, I have, last I checked, 10,000 photos. Uh, I do photography. I'm not good at it, but I still want to keep my photos because every time I get that lucky shot, you know, it's great. But... Um, that was 10,000 photos last I looked at it. I have family photos on there too. And I'm not going to be able to look at every photo regularly to make sure it's not corrupted because you could argue, you know, if a file is corrupted, you have backups, I hope. You could go to a, you know, time before it was corrupted, pull it back and replace the current one. Well, that's time one. 
But again, you're not going to listen to every MP3 in your collection. You're not going to watch every movie in your collection because there's just not enough time to even to do that or even just look at all your photos. So I was going through my photos one time and a couple of them, I think it was like back in 2003, were corrupted. You just couldn't read them. So I can't, I can't tell you at what point those photos got corrupted. You know, they could have became corrupted a year ago, you know, five, five years ago at the time I was looking at it. I have no idea. So I, I don't believe that there's ever a 100% anything, but I certainly want to do whatever I can to make sure that things just, um, you know, are just mysteriously going away. And I even had a, another strange issue on my RetroPies because, you know, RetroPie is an emulation system, but that's backed by TrueNAS 2 in my case, because if I add a new game, it's added to a data store in TrueNAS and it, you know, copies that via sync thing to all my RetroPies. And I had uh, Super Mario All-Stars would not run very well. It was just sluggish and horrible. And I just put it down to maybe, you know, emulation just doesn't handle that well. Uh, a couple of years, I didn't even bother playing that game just to find out at some point that ROM got corrupted. I redownloaded it. It was perfectly fine. So, um, you know, yeah. Do you have a problem? Maybe not, but you never have a problem until you do. That's why you kind of want something to back you in case um, something could happen that there's a chance that it won't. Yeah, it's it's one of those little things. Now, the other side of this too, I mentioned copy on write. I'm not going to dwell on it too much, but there is a book by Michael Lucas called ZFS Mastery, I believe is what he's called that one. He yep. he didn't just write the book on ZFS, he wrote two of them. So yep, there's, two of them. if you ever want to dive in deep, it's a really intricate look at how the file system works. And it's also been referred to many times as the billion dollar file system. One thing specific about the whole ZFS is there's been a long time research and development on it. And it just helps so much with that, you know, avoiding bit rot and all the other potential problems because of the scrubbing. The other thing it doesn't have is a check disk because it doesn't really need it because that's one of the advantages, once again, of copy on write file systems. They're very, very fault tolerant to keep from losing data. All right, I'm going to quit singing the praises of it and talk about one of the other features that a lot of people like. And this comes into the age of ransomware, um, snapshotting. Snapshotting is a way to grab each data set and say, I want to have a snapshot in time of what this data set looked like. Now, this is actually kind of cool because this even ties back into something you can do with Samba and something you can do with Active Directory is like shadow copies. This creates immutable shadow copies if you tie it to your Active Directory systems. And this is a popular use in the business world where they have it tied to AD, but you can just in general, have these snapshots. So this is where my data was. And I bring up ransomware because ransomware goes to encrypt everything. Well, with a ZFS snapshot, you just say, roll it back. And they roll back with amazing speed. You can jump backwards to the snapshot in time. You can also kind of create a fork of it too, if you wanted to fork a data set because you don't want to overwrite your existing one, as in roll it back to a snapshot in time of what that data looked like at that point in time. You can also create a fork and create a new data set based on a previous snapshot. These are really handy ways to uh, being able to manage all of your storage, especially if you're going to make some mass change to a bunch of documents or maybe reorganize something, just quickly snapshot ahead of time. Or even better, you snapshot it on a schedule. And that's how we have, you know, we just set this up as an automation, both in our home labs or for businesses. We're on a regular schedule. It just does a snapshot. That way, if there's anything bad that happens or a VM that gets corrupted that's running on an NFS share, I have all these different snapshots. I can just 
jump backwards to, or because we have so many VMs running in one NFS share, if I had one of them that somehow became broken in an unusual way, I could always fork that snapshot, copy that file back over where it needs to be, and away we go. This is a great tool because each snapshot only takes the differential and change between the current data and the snapshot. So if you're only changing 100 megs a day, then your snapshots are only 100 megs, which is really cool. In the case of storage, though, you expire them. So you keep, let's say, a parameter that says, I want to keep them for two weeks or three weeks. But if you're, once again, only doing 100 megs a day um, and you have a daily snapshot, you're only keeping that 100 megs times 14 days. And that's how much of the extra data it uses. So it still takes a little bit of storage planning, but they're relatively efficient. And ZFS has built-in compression on there to keep the storage efficiency high on this. So this is a really great way to be able to, especially when you're experimenting in the home lab <laughs> where you may goof something up, be able to roll it back really fast. So this is a, you know, definitely a big feature on there. Now, directly related to snapshots is what if you have a second TrueNAS? I've seen someone ask that in the questions because yes, you can have more than one pool on a singular TrueNAS, but even better would be to have another true NAS and have another pool on there. And that's where you get ZFS replication. ZFS replication, you can replicate the entire pool or any specific data set, and it does it at the block level. So it's not even looking at the files. You can have thousands of little files or one big file. It kind of doesn't care. It looks at the differential at the block level because that's the same way snapshots work. Snapshots not looking at the files. It works at the bottom level of the file system and goes, I'm creating this snapshot in time. It also then can send that snapshot over to another server to replicate it. So you can actually have all your data at the block level replicated to another on-site TrueNAS server or even an off-site one. This is where you can get that level of redundancy and confidence when you're uh, moving your data. And in case one of them suffers an absolute catastrophic meltdown, you know all your data has been replicated over there. And TrueNAS has done a great job of making this easy of you point it at server A, you give it the credentials for server B, and you tell it to replicate on the schedule you set. I've got plenty of tutorials on how to do it. it they've made it so easy because all you're doing is dropping in the parameters and giving it the IP address of the other server or you know, a domain name or however you have it set up. You just drop it in there. Now they replicate. Now your data is in two places. Life is good. <laughs> That's it's It saves you so much when you're doing that. Now, on that note, some, especially in the home lab, we realized not everyone can afford um, a uh, system of the having more than one system on there, then you actually go through and do something else like rsync because you can't afford two true NAS. All right, what are you going to do instead? Well, you just go over to rsync and from there you can say, all right, talk rsync over to uh, whatever other server you have. This is a a lot of other protocols are built into TrueNAS that allow you to do both. So you could go in there and say, I want to back it up to my non-TrueNAS server, or like in Jay's case, if you had rolled your own server, you still have that server, then you finally got around to uh, you know, building a TrueNAS server, you can still sync the data with non-TrueNAS equipment. They don't lock you into a ZFS ecosystem. By the way, also, you can also talk um, ZFS to other systems and do ZFS replication to non-TrueNAS systems. They're using OpenZFS on the base of this. You can load OpenZFS in Ubuntu. So you, if you wanted to talk ZFS replication and kind of learn how it worked from the command line, there's no lock-in. It's all open source. You're using standard protocols. 
So they kind of give you a good overall for getting your data. I call it, uh, you know, very much you can liberate your data from it. They're not locking you into this weird ecosystem or anything like that. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's an awesome thing. I'm I'm actually syncing it to a Synology now, um, which is actually kind of challenging, and not because of TrueNAS, but surprisingly because of Synology not really facilitating our sync as well as I would like them to. But anyway, you have options. You can you can copy your data to another device, another TrueNAS or another NAS of some sort. So, um, and it's recommended. I mean, why why not have more copies? Yep, and then let's get on to the cloud servers because, you know, I just like to hammer home the backup side and um, backing up to the cloud. We'd mentioned Backblaze. Um, they're probably still one of the best price bang for the buck. Me and Jay are both fans of Backblaze. They're not a sponsor yet of the show, but we, so I have no offer good for you on there, but Backblaze is a great service. Um, but there's a long list of cloud services, whether you roll your own and target it at your own service or use one of the ones built in. Um, they do have that option. And because we shouldn't just trust these cloud providers, they're not necessarily, you know, they're, they're not infallible. They may accidentally leak some data. So TrueNAS offers all the encryption. So the encryption on TrueNAS before you do back up to a cloud provider, you can encrypt it prior to sending it. So you don't have to trust the cloud provider. You just have to hopefully trust that they are going to have your data. As long as you're holding on to the decryption keys, you can do it. And once again, it's one more thing that TrueNAS has relatively made easy in there. Yep. Now let's talk about the part that I know Jay's going to have some opinion on and so do I. Let's talk about jails and yeah. jails are is jail is a containerization. They're using specifically the underlying technology of the jail and BSD that they use in TrueNAS is called IO cage. IO cage is a pretty cool system. It is very similar to the way containerization works in Linux. You're sharing the kernel space, but it's different because you're sharing the BSD kernel space. And this is where there's a little bit of a sigh. And I know there's going to be so much more excitement when you get over to playing with uh, Docker and Kubernetes and everything else that, that is all getting integrated into the TrueNAS scale because it's based on Linux. Because it's based on BSD, these plugins and the jails, if you build them yourself, build, build your own BSD jail, that's completely possible. I've got some tutorials on how to do that. And sometimes it's a better route to go. And the reason for that is, the plugins sometimes just lag in updates. I don't think they have enough maintainers for some projects. So people sometimes get upset at that they their project they want is several versions behind in some of the jails. This is something they're really trying to work on the community with, but it just comes down to developers, 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 as was famously once said. <laughs> we need more people in the BSD side to yep. maintain these packages. But, you know, Linux is the hotness now. So there's more developers to you know, update, you can probably find a newer uh, Docker container for something before you'll find the newest version in the BST jail ecosystem. And I use the, um, the sync thing plugin. That's the only one I really use. And it's kind of like you have, you know, you have plugins, which I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think every NAS provider has some sort of plugin system yeah. nowadays. I mean, Synology, you name it. You could just go in their little store or whatever they decide to call it and click on something and install it. So TrueNAS has that. And when you install a plugin, it's going to create a jail for that plugin to run in. And that's kind of like the one-to-one -one match there that we have. You could create a jail in the command line without creating a plugin. You could just decide, I want to create a jail. And it doesn't have to be for a plugin. But if you were to go in there into the GUI, 
install a plugin, you're gonna you're gonna get a jail, and that's not really a problem necessarily. Um, it's just the underlying underlining stuff. But like Tom said, it's just sometimes I go for the latest version of a thing and it's not there. And there's several schools of thought. Yeah, we need more developers. Now I could probably go in there and you know put in a pull request to make that happen. But then it's like, wh when do I stop, right? Um, I, I mean, I hope someone does that. And I certainly probably should be doing that. But the idea is that people have jobs and it's hard for them to um, even know how to give back, let alone give back. But it's still recommended if you have some time. It would really help TrueNAS kind of keep things updated because they can't themselves update everything. I think they've, I think um, whoever maintains SyncThing, um, last I checked the version, they seem to be doing a pretty decent job. Yeah. So, far. so Nextcloud, I haven't looked at it in over a year, but I, I know that was there and that was severely out of date. I hope that's not the case now. So it's, it's hit or miss. Yeah. And SyncThing's kind of a cool one because uh, I've done this where you can build your own jail with SyncThing. I really love that tool. And obviously, Jay's a big fan of it as well. One of the cool things is SyncThing has its own updater. And because it doesn't rely on a lot of dependencies, it's a relatively easy system to set up inside there. And even when you launch it from their system, it's not hard to uh, get it to auto-update from its own SyncThing. Because the way SyncThing is compiled, they compile their BSD version at the same time they compile their Linux version and Windows versions all together it just pulls from its own update server. So it's easy for that particular plugin to be maintained. Some of the other ones are like that, but some of the ones that get a little bit trickier to maintain is when they have dependencies that are more Linux leaning, I should say, where there's a BSD equivalent, but it may not be as popular. So this is where you can get into the nuance of trying to figure out how to maintain and update that because, well, BSD and Linux are not the same, despite what someone in the comments may have already said. There are some fundamental differences to the way they work. And then that little nuance difference between them does mean the difference between that plugin working and not working uh, the way you expected. So that that is one of the, so to speak, a little bit of a downside you can run into with the jail system on there. It's still a good system. It's still a good way to run certain things um, within there. And you can set up, there's plenty of instructions how to run Plex being one of the really popular ones that you can run inside there. And yeah. it's better, in my opinion, to run Plex on a separate server running Linux because it's easier to update. But absolutely, if you put the time into it, you can learn and get the latest version of Plex up and running or it's not too terrible to be a version behind, uh, a little bit of a version behind on uh, Plex when you're running it through like the jail system. So it's workable, but with warnings. Uh, in very brief mention here, I don't use the virtualization, the Beehive virtualization system in TrueNAS. Anytime I've tested it, I found it to be buggy. I don't think Jay's ever tested it. I have a few friends that it's the one thing that I feel very, it's very undeveloped in there. So um, my my recommendation is always don't use it. It's unless you just like playing with it or um, want to take the time to really learn it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you have the tools available with TrueNAS to basically do this however you want. I mean, it, if, if you don't have a, a version available of something you want to run that's natively available in TrueNAS, you could put it on a Linux server, like Tom mentioned, or even a container because, you know, um, TrueNAS exposes NFS. And I like to use AutoFS because that mounts everything on demand. That's how I have Plex set up. I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, yeah. but for those that didn't hear it, um, I have this disposable Plex VM and all it does is mount via AutoFS, which is NFS, this uh, share. And it's, it's, it's like anytime Plex looks at the video share, it mounts it so quick that Plex can't realize that it was ever not mounted. 
So that kind of helps avoid the NFS locks. Doesn't 100% avoid them, but it, it does make it better. And then you can have TrueNAS as the storage backend, and then you can have containers or VMs to host the individual applications that you want to connect to those uh, backend storage um, devices. And that works for me. The exception being sync thing, I just really like that being there on the uh, TrueNAS server since TrueNAS for me is where all my data goes. It just makes sense for sync thing, which handles data synchronization to also be where the data is natively and not run that separate. But um, other than that, I generally try to run everything outside of TrueNAS and just leave TrueNAS as a network storage device and not an app store. Although, you know, I, I do agree that having the app store, so to speak, is pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's one of those little nuances and the way you see it used. And I know I get the, the love in the home lab world to put everything in one box because that makes more sense. But unfortunately, ZFSB can, I'm sorry, TrueNAS can be a tricky box to do it, which is, of course, and I've already seen it rolling in the comments why so many people are trying scale. By the way, I did mention TrueNAS Scales Alpha, but it is because of all of you and many of you, I should say, that are listening right now and running it that help report these bugs in TrueNAS Scale. That's what helps the developers understand use cases and brings it from beta or alpha right now to beta to production. So I'm actually really excited to see a lot of you in here posting that you're already running Scale. Um, you know, this really helps. Anytime you can help troubleshoot problems and participate in the bug reporting of the product to improve it. Uh, I, I love seeing that. I know a lot of people are doing it. So I'm not, I'm not telling people not to do it, but I'm saying it may not be the best approach if, you, if you're not familiar with it. But if you're already familiar like I am with TrueNAS and you want to play with it, yes, I'm playing with it too. So <laughs> Yeah, we have a lot of enthusiasts. They, they want to try the latest things. I mean, just as an aside, I have um, a couple of Pine phones in the studio right now, and they barely work at all. Like almost everything that I try is, is an epic failure, but it's it's still fun because you can watch the progress or the project grow and mature. Yep. You can submit the bug requests or bug reports, and you can let people know about the problems you're having or wish list items, things you wish it had that it doesn't, and be a part of the process. And let's be honest, usually a lot of companies, they don't make you part of that process. You just get whatever they produce for better or worse. Yeah, you can engage quite a bit with the community on there. Now, one of the last things I wanted to cover is something I didn't think as much about, but apparently this can be a problem for some of the home lab people that want to create a portal for people to change their own passwords and things like that. Now, you can tie the TrueNAS system into Active Directory for authentication. And we do this for a lot of businesses, common use case. But for home users, I didn't really think as much about this, but I've realized it's come up a little bit more. You can set users. It has a user system. It has a granular permission system and access control list system. And I've done several videos on how to set all the parameters and things like that. What it doesn't have is a way for each user. It doesn't have its own AD server. It doesn't have a way for users to go in and tie it to their that was something they built in a long time ago, but it, I don't think it was ever well-developed and they dropped it later in TrueNAS. So it can't act as its own AD server like some systems can. I think Synology, for example, has like its own AD server in there. Um, it can tie into an AD server, but it doesn't act as one. So it's not a replacement drop-in. It has to be a companion to a Windows AD server. It's one of those little details, but some people, um, that is something important where they want to be able to, you know, replace their Active Directory. I don't need this Windows server. I want to replace it with TrueNAS. Well, you can create all the usernames and 
set up their passwords on there, but it doesn't give users their own portal when they change it and synchronize with their, you know, Windows machines, if that's something they're doing. I think it's worth mentioning yeah. on that. But as far as if you want to tie it to some other authentication server, absolutely you can. Yeah, and also it's important to understand for a lot of people out there that don't already know, AD is not LDAP and LDAP is not AD. Yes, there you could argue that they're the same technology, that you know there's there's similarities, and one's built on the other, and so on. But you know Microsoft they put new stuff in there, and they're not going to hesitate. You know if they want to put a new feature in Active Directory today, they're going to do it today. They're not going to spend time and update the Samba project and update all these other ones unless they have a, a company that has a partnership with Microsoft. Then yeah, probably. But I've seen situations where people get Active Directory working and then it just breaks for some reason. I would say if that's something you want to do, I would look at LDAP, in my opinion, if you don't have an enterprise use case. Um, that might work better, but that also depends on if you have a mixed system environment, which is a whole nother episode altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Getting all those systems that tie in together becomes its my own it's, fun thing. Yeah. But I, you know, you you do have the ability to do groups and users and things like that. But you, the admin, I'm speaking to all of you homelab people or admin in these systems, you will be the one setting it up. You won't have some, you know, delegated portal or similar way that is handled. It's not in parity, so to speak, with the way permissions are handled in, let's say, a Windows domain yeah. controller environment. So um, I thought it was worth mentioning on that, though, because this is those little things. Um, other than that, it's of course everything that we said and more because we didn't touch all the features it has, but I think this is a good way to get the idea. I mean, you you can go crazy with it. It works as an S3 target. Yes, it can emulate yeah. Amazon S3 protocol. Um, so you can use it for all kinds of expanded enterprise things. And in the Serve the Home article, um, we didn't talk much about it, but obviously network card interfaces, being able to support 10 gig, 25 gig, 100 gig connections. Yes, yes, yes. And Serve the Home does have some of that. I didn't mention at the beginning, but I think it's worth mentioning too. If you're going to connect your storage server, you want it to be fast and one gig just ain't going to cut it. And 10 gig is now very affordable and 25 gig and 100 gig stuff is becoming more, I would say, home lab affordable. 10, 10 gig is almost a no brainer in a home lab with some of these uh, inexpensive 10 gig connections yeah. and uh, SFP cards that are well supported in TrueNAS. You can buy them for you know, you can buy a dual SFP 10 gig card for like an Intel DA520, I think are probably around 50, 60 bucks on eBay. Um, there's all kinds of deals to be had when you're doing these. So it's it's getting affordable to do uh, 10 gig in the home. So <laughs> I think I'm going to go back to 10 gig. I probably still have some of the same equipment as I um, had before. So I'll re-implement that. Um, and I, I really wish that somebody would just make videos about TrueNAS. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait, we'll have a link. Someone has all my tutorials that. curated in a link that we'll leave in the show notes as well for uh, all my latest TrueNAS videos to yeah. cover a lot of a wide variety of topics on how to get things done in TrueNAS, including one that just discusses um, the whole argument of what's the best way to set up my TrueNAS, all the ways. <laughs> yep. Definitely. Which. By the way, that sends you down a rabbit hole of a lot of reading by some of the engineers that have wrote some good articles. I curated all those articles and it, it's I've spent so much time reading them and they're still not the best answer, but there's a lot of good answers. And I didn't even have time in this episode to dive into special drives like L2 ARC caching, read cache, or Zill intention log caches, or even the new ones, Wendell. Man, I should leave a link to Wendell's video because he did uh, a couple ZFS videos, including one of them on 
uh, metadata drives. That's a really cool one. And Wendell does a deep dive because he's got some magic he put together of how to build uh, metadata drives and ways you can adjust them because ZFS is made has so many little knobs you can turn to tune it, including on the fly, you can change some of the block size and storage size of different data sets on a per data set basis to fine tune what files you're going to store in there for the fastest way to access those files. There's a lot of tuning parameters that can go in there. Once again, these are all those little things that uh, you can really, you can spend a easy time getting this set up and have a system up and running. But next thing you know, you spent two weeks just reading articles and tuning each little parameter for each data set based on the level of storage and then dynamically adding things like metadata drives. And like I said, Wendell's, Wendell's dive into that was uh, one of my favorites. I'll make sure I link that in there. Uh, he, he talks a lot about it. Wendell from Level 1 Techs about uh, and it's their use case because he's building a new uh, storage array with ZFS. And it's a ZFS talk about how they have so many files from so many videos that they've created over so many years that they've now had to create metadata drives, which is basically high-speed drives to better and faster indexing of millions of files that they have. That sounds exciting. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's uh, it's pretty extensible of what he has. He's, his uh, new RAID server he's been doing some videos on has 54 hard drives in it. So it's... Uh, that's it, it's amazing. We've seen some pretty big systems out there uh, built with yeah. uh, TrueNAS. It's it's impressive, or ZFS in general. So, yep. uh, any anything else we should add? I think we I think I covered it as much as yeah. we can squeeze into an hour. <laughs> the only thing I would add is, is just a tip. You know, after you have uh, TrueNAS set up, um, before you go crazy copying your data to it, just spend some time thinking about the logical arrangement of your data sets. Like the higher level, the lower level. For example, I might I have a data set for media, and then a d data set underneath that called music, and then one under you know also underneath um, media called you know videos or, or I think uh, movies or something like that. But you just look at the logical um, you know how how you want to carve out your storage. You just kind of map that out ahead of time, and then create the data stores to um, abide by that layout that you've come up with. You'll have an easier time because the you know what you might end up doing instead is oh I should have put more thought into that and then you're really copying data from one to the other and it's copying data between data sets is not like it's on the same file system in this instant I mean you are literally copying from a different file system from one to the next and it takes some time so just um, keep in mind uh, just lay that out first just just get a piece of paper write it down how you want to carve out your storage have a good plan in place. And I think that'll avoid that being a problem in the future. Yep. Oh, and I just because someone mentioned the comments, uh, I should mention this to you. It supports full levels of encryption for data at rest. So uh, that's that's an important parameter with, especially in compliance level things that we deal with in the enterprise market. They, you want to make sure that anytime you have a system, let's say someone were to physically remove that system, is it encrypted? And this is a concern with home lab people. I, I care about my privacy. If someone were to come in and take a server, I want to make sure they can't gain the data off it. And that's something easily and well supported on uh, TrueNAS as well as full data at rest encryption. Right. I just seen a few comments come by and I'm like, yep, I should have mentioned it earlier, but absolutely a supported thing. Not only do you encrypt the stuff before you send it to the cloud for backup, but you can also have it encrypted. So if someone were to physically take the uh, plug out of it, sorry, without the passwords, you're not getting any further. <laughs> yep. That's important. Yep. That Hey, I, I encrypt everything. So yep. that's... Uh, 
I just encrypt all the things. It's my default answer for it because it just, that way I never worry about, did I encrypt it? It's always my first step now, anything I build, whether it's the desktop I'm sitting at right now, you know, you, you load it up with Pop! OS, you set up your encryption. Whenever I build my ZFS, so that encryption box, always check the encryption box when, you, when you're building out the drives. Just do it now. Even if you're not sure if you need it, do it now. <laughs> yeah, save that password in a, in a very, very secure place yeah. in case you lose it. And don't put your password in a, you know, somewhere where it's easy to get to by someone. You don't want to have access to it. Just uh, keep it handy. If you lose that, you're done. It's important yep. to keep in mind. So, all right. Well, thank you guys for joining us on this episode, diving into TrueNAS. Um, as always, we love seeing the feedback. Leave the comments below on the video. Uh, or if you listen to us as a podcast, you know, there's ways to reach out to us and connect with me or Jay. All the show notes will be down below. And thank you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>